0: So, uh, how are you all? Good. You all look quite dead. I'll uh, tell you what I did today. Uh, not that you care, but still, so. So today, oh, <laughs> you so today, what happened uh, was um, we uh, had a half day at work. Yeah, come on, come on yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's another one there's there. Yeah. yeah. I had a half day at work, which was nice. And um, then I used my half, normally I use my half day, especially if I'm talking uh, at the meeting, I use my half day typically to prepare the meeting, but we had to go see our accountant. And uh, those of you who know what's going on, I'll probably share it later on tonight, And that there's some problems. Um, anyway, so I talked to the accountant about that, and that was, that was fun. Um, we spent more time than I would have liked with the accountant. Um, and then rushed home. Sarah ditched me to go do something else. Sure. And then literally, literally until 10 minutes ago, I was, uh, preparing this. It's, um, six pages. Uh, <laughs> <In ten laughs> but minutes. don't worry. We'll, so, we'll, we'll <laughs> No, 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 not in 10 minutes. <laughs> I was like in like three hours or something like that. Uh, but don't worry. I, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to it together, hopefully. And so pardon the rambling. So anyway, all that to say we should pray because we need God's, God's uh, presence. Yeah. Um, dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. Thank you for um, every single person who's here, Lord, and for those who can't make it. Um, Lord, we just say uh, that we want you here and we want to hear from you. Um, Lord, we want our hearts and our minds to be open to you. So speak, Lord, we're listening. And we want to leave here transformed. In Jesus, name it, amen. amen. Okay, so today we're going to take a break from the um, series that we've been doing about Jesus' parables. We're going to be covering uh, a topic that has been requested. Um, so you know, we we do get requests from time to time, which is great. And one of the requests was spiritual warfare. Um, uh, talking about you know what that what that is is a real, you know. I feel like there's two types of Christians. One type of Christian is the the type of person who looks and hears about things like spiritual warfare and is like, that's a bit strange, that's a bit odd. You know, I believe in the natural world. And we try to naturalize a lot of things. We try to turn a lot of our reality into the basic bare bones, what we can see and what we can understand. And then you've got the other types of Christians um, who... Uh, completely opposite and who sometimes you feel like oh I don't want to be around you you're a little bit strange Uh, everything is spiritual Uh, nothing can be not spiritual and uh, they they seem to see ghosts where we can't see them and stuff like that and if you're anything like me well well, if you're anything like me you probably lean more towards the natural world than anything else but the bible actually is uh, quite uh, um, vocal about uh, the spiritual world, and about the fact that we're not just, as Yoda puts it, this crude matter, um, but that there is something beyond our flesh and blood and physicality um, that God wants to reveal. Welcome, welcome. We've got a chair here, and if you wanna pull that up. (coughs) All right, so. Spiritual warfare. I wonder, I wonder what, it, what kind of uh, images come to your head when, we, when I mention the word spiritual warfare, you know? Um, before we dive into it, I just want to tell you a story, okay? This is a story, I made it up today. Um, <laughs> the story is this, you've got a general and the general is fighting a massive battle and in, uh, he, he's defending his home country, he's on the front lines He's defending his home country. And he sees the enemy coming towards them, about to invade his home country. And as the enemy is advancing, the general realizes that the civilians that live in the city, they don't have enough time to escape. That they're going to be overrun, they're going to be destroyed by the enemy when they come. So what the general does is he sends a battalion of his out to meet this invading uh, army, And he knows that this battalion has no chance of success. He knows that they're going to be destroyed and wiped out. But he sends them out anyway because he knows that he's going to buy the civilians some time to evacuate and buy some more time for more reinforcements to come so that they have an opportunity to fight this battle and maybe win. Now, my question to you is, who is at blame when death comes, when the battalion is wiped out. Who's to blame? Is it the general or is it the invading army? Sometimes when we as people who call ourselves Christians, we view spiritual warfare like this. We view spiritual warfare as like a disaster that's coming and we're trying to figure out how much of it is God's fault, how much of it is the enemy's fault. And we try to kind of rationalize What's going on, and, what, you know, and what's the point here, and what's the end goal, what's the end objective, you know? Uh, are, you, are we doing this so that we can save some civilians? Are we doing this so that I can succeed and beat the battle? Are we doing it, like, what's the point here? and where, How much is God, and how much is the enemy's fault? And I want to tell you, that's not how the Bible views uh, spiritual warfare at all. It's not how the Bible views uh, the spiritual world, really, at all. The way that the Bible views spiritual warfare is that it's not over circumstances, it's not over um, you know, the outcome of the battle, rather, it's purely over your heart, what's going on in your heart. Because you see, regardless of why the enemy is coming or what God's plans are for you in the situation, the Bible, instead of being focused on the outcome, it's more focused about how you're going to engage and interact with God. And so the real warfare, the real warfare, warfare and the real thing that the, the real prize that the enemy has tried to claim and take is how you're engaging with God and how you respond to him, how you interact with him, and whether or not you're going to be close to him or far away from him. Um, so yeah, the Bible time and time again, you know you'll read the Bible and you'll be like, You'll read this crazy thing happening in the Bible, and you'll be like, whoa, that was, did God do that? Did God really, like, just, you know, go and try to, like, kill these people? Or was that Satan? And time and time again, you're not going to find the answer. As much as you try to read into it, you're not going to find the answer. I'll give you an example if you don't believe me. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, we read these words. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah, so that, which was a command that God previously told the Israelites, don't number, don't number your nation. The Israelites were supposed to be a group of people that were too big to number. But God here is angry against Israel, so he tells David, Go and number them, because he wants to bring judgment on the Israelites. But then we read in 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, this is a recap of the story. Chronicles is, a, is a, a set of books in the Bible that's a recap of essentially the whole Bible that came before it. And this is the recap, you ready? Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. To number Israel. So who was it? Was it God who incited David to count Israel and bring judgment? Or was it Satan who was annoyed at Israel and wanted to harm them and damage them? Guess what? That tension exists. We have to live with it as Christians. Guess what? That tension exists in our life as well. When bad things happen, you're going to have to live with that tension in your life. Is this God? Is this Satan? Do I understand? Do I know? You might not find out. It might just be there. And you don't have to be okay with that. But what you do have to realize is that there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger than who's the one who's about to bring the judgment, or about to bring the consequences. There's something bigger happening. And so we're going to look at four stories tonight that are going to show us the real battleground, the real thing that's going on behind behind the lines, behind our vision, behind our sight, and what the true goals of the enemy is, and what God's goal is for our lives when we face uh, these challenges and these hard times. So... Let's, uh, just to, I'll, do, I'll give you a, a Cliff Notes version of what we're about to do. The four stories, here are the four things. Those of you who know me, pardon me, <clears throat> you know I don't like spoilers, but uh, I'm going to spoil it. You ready? So, spoiler number one. The first story we're going to read is uh, the story of Joseph, and we're going to find out about, uh, so if you want to open it up, Genesis chapter 37, that's where we're going to read from. And what we're going to find out is how the enemy is trying to rob us of our purpose, but how God uh, tries to reinstate purpose and not make us aimless. Uh, the second story we're going to read is... Well, actually, we'll get to it when we get to it. How about that? All right. So purposeness, pur- purposefulness versus aimlessness. Well, let's have a look at Genesis chapter 37, uh, verse 3. So, this is the story, or the beginning of the story, of Joseph. Let's have a read. Now, Israel, i.e. Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. This is verse 3. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and could not speak peacefully to him. So, we've got this picture, this family... Right off the bat, you can tell that they're a nice, functional family culture. No, they're not. Uh, Jacob, the father, loves Joseph, his youngest, more than any of the other children. And guess what that's going to do to his siblings? It's going to cause tension. It's going to cause problems. Um, And let's read on. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? All right, we're getting a bit of a picture of Joseph's character here. We've got this cocky little kid, he's about 17 years old in this uh, the time of this story, and he knows his dad loves him more than her have you ever had one of those students at school who knows that they're like the favorite of the teacher and they know that like they can't really do anything wrong. And even if they do something wrong, they apologize and quickly the teacher just like forgives them. It's okay. It's fine. And they're constantly kind of showing up. I got an A plus and look at me and all this kind of stuff. This is the scenario here. We got Joseph, the goody two-shoes. And he's like, hey guys, I had a drink. He, know, he knows he's beloved. He knows that he's great. And he's constantly pulling out the beholds, beholds, beholds. And he's saying to them all, uh, yeah, this is, this is my destiny, my purpose. My destiny is I'm going to be better than all of you. This is, this is my purpose in life. But what they couldn't see, or at least what the story tells or implies, again, it's not saying it outright, but what the story tends to imply here is that God is giving Joseph these dreams. So on the outside, they're just seeing this cocky little brother of theirs who's, got a coat and who's loved by their dad but what's happening behind the veil so to speak is that joseph is actually giving being given revelations by god and the reason why we know that is because of the outcome of this story Um, and so sheaves uh, in other words a harvest right the harvest all of the harvest is collected and joseph's harvest is better and bigger and uh bowed down to by his brother's harvest in other words He's more, more prosperous, he's more successful, he's more uh, um, uh, greater in, in what he, he's producing um, than they are. And his brothers know exactly what he's talking about. Like they doesn't take a genius to interpret what's going on behind his head when he's telling them this story. They're like, for real? you think that we're going to serve you and bow down to you? It doesn't end there. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his fathers and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept these sayings in his mind. So we have the. This is the stage that's set in front of us. Joseph, cocky kid, having these dreams, being filled with this uh, purpose and this destiny that we know as, because of the end of the story that is given to him by God. And essentially, this 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 purpose is that he's going to rule. God's giving him this promise, and what it's doing to Joseph. I mean, we can we can infer some things. <clears throat> what it's doing to Joseph that we can infer is probably it's gonna it's making him get even higher up on his uh, little um, pedestal that he's put himself on, right? Um, And what that's also doing is, and and this is a very intentional set of language that we're reading here, it's making his brothers very jealous. Can you remember any other stories in the Bible where a brother gets jealous against another brother for being favoured? Right. Okay. And what does God tell Cain as he's jealous about the favour that God shows to Abel? Be careful, sin is at your door, it's crouching, and it's ready to attack you and consume you if you're not careful. And so this is the the platform that is set before us. And as we read the story, we find out that these guys, they fall into the same trap as uh, Cain did. But instead of, and into a series of bizarre events, um, and it's worth reading, I'm not gonna read it uh, to you myself, but it's worth reading. From going out, being sent out by his father to find his brothers, to them not being there and then finding some random dude who's like, oh yeah, <clears throat> go that way, they're over there. And then eventually finding them and then them seeing him a far way away and debating with themselves, what are they going to do with him? Are they going to kill him? Or are they just going to chuck him in a well, leave him for dead? But Reuben, his one of his older brothers, is like, well, let's chuck him there, but in his head, he's like, I'm going to save him. And then reuben just goes away somewhere and the rest of the brothers when they do chuck him in the well decide ah oh, and judah particularly says let's sell him why don't we sell him why why are we going to have blood on our hands so at least a little bit better than cain why are we going to have blood on our hands why don't we make a profit here We make a profit and win-win for everyone we don't kill anyone he doesn't die we get rich it's all great And dad won't be the wiser, he'll just grieve for his son and that's the end of that. And so that's exactly what happens. And they sell him and Joseph as we know goes to Egypt and is a slave uh, in Egypt. And the way I view and the way I was reading this story as, as it came to mind today was, it's like this tug of war, this spiritual tug of war that's going on behind the scenes that the author is not telling us, he's just telling us these events as they shake down but we're seeing this tug-of-war going on behind the scenes until eventually God gets uh, his way and then we read this story in Genesis 39 so now Joseph is sold as a slave and he is in Egypt Um, and all of a sudden you know put yourself in Joseph's shoes cocky young kid, loved by his dad, favoured amongst all his brothers had everything and anything he wanted, had a really nice coat and uh, now sold into slavery, where's this dream of being bowed to now? In fact, if anything, he's the one doing the bowing, and he's he's in a foreign land with foreign people, no friends, no love, no nothing, treated like a slave. And this is what we hear. I wonder, wonder how you would react in that situation. Again, modern day. Churchianity, one on one. You look at a situation like this. If you find yourself in a situation like this, instinctively, where our mind goes to is, is this God? Is this Satan? Oh, I'm just going to rest on God. Or I'm going to, I'm going to fight against this. Or or, how are you going to engage? You know how Joseph engages? Genesis 39, verse one. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. This is what the Bible claims to say. Even in the midst of literally one of the worst situations you can imagine, bar being dead, God is still with this kid. And in fact, God traveled with him down to Egypt and rests with him. And guess what? The very next words, and he became a successful man. Can you call a slave successful? Do you reckon Potiphar would have looked at Joseph and called him successful? I mean, sure. He became the head of all the other servants. Does that define success? Would you rather be the head of all the servants or maybe just at home, chilling with Dad and getting a new coat? What's more successful to you and all right? But the claim in this story is that behind the workings of the powers of war that are playing a uh, you know, that are raging on, Joseph here is still winning and that God is on his side still. And we read this in verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and of all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians house. For Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. In house and field. And then we read in verse. Uh, uh, where are we? Verse 7. You ready? Spanner in the works. The enemy can see what their plan so far isn't working. And so here's what happens. Verse 7. After a time. His master's wife. Cast her eyes on Joseph. And said. Lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife. Behold. Oh, sorry. Uh, Yeah, he said to his master's wife, Behold, he loves his beholds, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? Is that what he said? No. No. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph displays something that I think uh, is truly incredible and and the biggest challenge I think that we could ever um, hope for in our lives and walk with God. That is that he looks at this situation and he sees it for exactly what it is. He sees the situation in front of him the success that God's brought him in this dark and terrible moment of his life. And what he sees is he sees that he's blessed. And more than that, what he sees was that he doesn't earn any of it. It's not his at all. And he doesn't see this woman and see the potential or or be short-sighted at what he wants or, or the temptation of the moment. He sees what's behind it, and that is that God's put me here and I've been given favor and I'm not going to go and throw that away. And that's a situation where when the enemy is trying to take away your purpose, they're trying to get you to look at whatever else to distract you and show you whatever else you want in this life. Or whatever else will give you comfort when you're feeling sorry about yourself. I don't know how many times you know, you've, ever, <clears throat> you've ever been disappointed by something, you, things haven't gone your way and you just turned around and being like well stuff this and the first thing that goes out the window is reading your Bible or the first thing that goes out the window is uh, going to church or the first thing that goes out the window is uh, actually wrestling with God about the situation that you're in and you're just like forget this, I'm just going to do what I want, nothing's going my way I'm going to find peace and, and satisfaction in what I want right now and Joseph here is like no Things haven't gone my way, but still, the little good that I have, it's been given to me by God. And I'm not going to reject Him now. I'm not going to throw it all away now. And so then, the enemy sees. And it says, literally in the next few verses, that she kept trying over and over and over again. she hounds Him, constantly harasses Him to try to sleep with her. Until eventually, she, she grabs Him when He's alone. His clothes are left in her hand, and she accuses him of rape. And Potiphar and everyone assumes he's guilty and throws him in prison. But we read this in verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That word there, another translation you can use for it is faithfulness. God showed him faithfulness and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful. God's purpose over Joseph's life was that you would rule, that you would be a ruler, that you would be successful. That was the dreams he gave him from a very young age. And guess what? It doesn't matter where Joseph is. It doesn't matter if he's a slave. It doesn't matter if he's in prison. It doesn't matter if he rots in prison for several years. Um, no matter what, where, whatever environment he is, Joseph, he lives into his purpose that God calls him into. He rules. Literally and figuratively. He rules. And everyone around him can see. Can see exactly that. Until eventually, Again, the story keeps unfolding. We see that Joseph starts to get quite upset at how long he's been in prison. Until finally, the right time has come, and God um, pulls him out of prison, only to put him in front of Pharaoh so that he will uh, interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then all of a sudden, Joseph tells him, "Hey, guy, um, uh, you know, there's going to be a big famine, and you know, blah blah blah." And then Pharaoh's like, "You're a pretty smart guy. You you rule." you should should rule over what's about to come next. And he sets him literally up to be the right-hand man to the Pharaoh. He he goes from being a prisoner in jail to being literally the most powerful person bar Pharaoh um, in the whole of the kingdom. And Egypt in the day is literally like the world's power. It is the hub of everything. And so Joseph goes from being literally a nobody to the most powerful person in the whole world. And this is the story, but then the story of Joseph, it's not finished. Because you see, it's not just about getting the success. It's a, again, you know, like some of us, we, we hit the lowest lows until finally we hit the highest highs, and we're like, God, you won the battle for me. We came through, you made it, you did it for me, that's great. No, 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 no. You See, God wasn't done. This, this was all still unfolding until eventually Joseph's family were in need until they had nothing and they were forced to come to Egypt. And guess what? Guess who, guess who his brothers saw or who, who saw his brothers uh, in Egypt in the marketplace trying to buy the only sheaths of grain that would exist in the land in the time of famine. It was Joseph. They didn't know, obviously. And Joseph put them through a string of tests until eventually he was satisfied that his brothers knew how much uh, that what they did was wrong but not only that but th- that he saw the remorse in their heart until eventually he could see that Benjamin his youngest brother who came after him that he never met before he put them to the test and he wanted to see whether or not they would repeat the same mistake and Judah the same one that 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 sold Joseph into slavery was the same person who said take me instead I don't want to see what what losing Benjamin would do to my father He couldn't bear it. Take me instead. And that's when Joseph breaks down in tears and says to his brothers, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. It's me. Um, And all of this that you did, this was for good. And in fact, we read in Genesis 50, so this is after all his brothers and Abraham, uh, sorry, Jacob come and live in Egypt, have been blessed by Pharaoh and blessed by God and uh, see Joseph's success. And then his father dies. Joseph's father dies. Jacob dies. And you know what his brothers do? They're terrified. They're, they're, they're scared out of their minds. They're like, maybe Joseph was just keeping us around long enough to see our dad die. And then he's going to take revenge on us. Because they didn't know what had trans- what had happened in Joseph's heart. How, how God's purpose over his life had changed him and transformed him as he kept walking in step with God. And this is what we read in Genesis 50. So just after Jacob dies, his brothers send word to Joseph and they say this. Um, they said, Joseph's brothers said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died, which is a lie. Okay? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know what crushed Joseph's heart in that moment? Was that he thought that his dad and his brothers didn't know who he was. Even though years had passed since he saved them and rescued them and forgave them, they still thought that he was going to hurt them and wanted ill of them. And Joseph wept. And then it says this, uh, Joseph said to the, uh, uh, sorry, uh, his brothers came also and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. His dreams are coming true all around him. But Joseph said to them, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Because you see, the journey wasn't about success. The journey wasn't just about reaching the top. Joseph's purpose and what he discovered as he battled battled this this war that was going on around him, his purpose was ultimately for one thing. that He would be lifted up so that he could lift other people up as well. And that's what they couldn't see, all of them couldn't see, at the beginning when he had his dreams. All they saw was, oh, you're going to expect us to bow down to you? Well, what they couldn't see was God's intent and plan through all this muck and misery to take this man to a place where he would be broken enough, humble enough, loving enough and so obedient to God enough that he would be the deliverance that they actually tried to to put him down for Um, and and that through his success that he would provide good uh, and and provide everything that they needed for his brothers, those who caused evil. Can you think of anyone that, that, that has that life? that that the Bible tells us has that life. So that's that's the first story. Yeah. Purpose in the face of what the enemy tries to do, which is to give you no purpose, to give you um, well, essentially being aimless and meaningless in your life. So the challenge I guess for us in that is what's your purpose? And what is it that Satan is trying to the enemy is trying to take away from you? What is it that you think is under attack? What part of your future is it that you're afraid of losing that you think is crashing down around you? And do you know that God is big enough beyond any situation or circumstance to eventually bring about His purpose in your life if you're just going to surrender it? And you you might not know what that purpose is. You might have dreams and visions, and they might be from God, but you might be misinterpreting the full beauty of what they mean in your life. Are you going to be patient enough for God to grow it in your heart? Alright, let's look at the next step. The next thing is faith versus fear. So the enemy tries to take away our faith and replace it with fear. And we're going to read a story in the book of Numbers chapter 13. You guys alright? Sure? Alright. Okay. (laughs) Alright. Two stories in. Alright, here we go. Um, So Numbers chapter 13. And this is a story about Moses... Uh, and um, sending forward the spies to scout out the promised land. So what's happened up until this point? Exodus, the people of Israel are out and they've approached the promised land. They're literally by the promised land. Yeah? Um, and uh, God is saying, hey, here it is. You're at the footsteps. Go on in. And so Moses sends out 12 spies. Two of them are Joshua and Caleb who we'll go on to read about. And uh, these spies are, well, let's read, let's have a look. So chapter 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country, see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob and blah, 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 blah. Skip, Uh, verse 23. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. single cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also bought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster that the people of Israel had cut down from the tree. You get, in the, get in the picture here? So they're sent out. Look at the promised land. Go have a look at what what God's given you. Go, check it out. And they come back and tell us so that we can get ready. Yeah. You know? So what do they do? They go out. Whoa, is it what? It's a pretty impressive land. The grapes, uh, one cluster of grapes. You, know, you ever seen um, the, uh, what do you call it? The Greek god Dionysus, where, where the god of excess and all that. And how he has the cluster of grapes and he picks one grape off at a time. while well, people are feeding him grapes. Yeah. One cluster of grapes. Even the god Dionysus would have had a field day. was carried between two people. Yeah, It's huge. Um, so this land is bountiful. This land is everything that God promised and more. Land flowing with milk and honey. Um, in other words, God's promised them everything. And everything that God promised them is right there in front of them. Uh, Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, so they go hanging around for 40 days, inspecting everything, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, it's abundant, um, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amal- 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 Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amor- Amorites d- dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And then, so, okay, so we get, oh, it's great. It's amazing. It's, you won't believe your eyes when you see it, but guys, it's pretty crazy. There's all these people there, and they're pretty strong, and their cities are crazy, and like... But, but, but. And then all of a sudden, Caleb can tell the, the turmoil and everything. One of the one of the other spies... Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go. Let's go and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. All right, you've got to ask yourself at this point in the question. Is Caleb stupid? Like that's what you've got to ask yourself. Because you got 10 out of the 12 saying... Guys, it's great, but there's there's a lot of stuff here that we don't, we can't, we're not prepared for. We're not going to be able to face. And then you got this one guy, or one of the two, who's going to speak up and say no. And he's like, no, no, let's go now. Let's go. Come on, let's go take it. Why? Why? The answer is, Caleb is not looking at the people or anything. He's looking at one thing and one thing only, which is. The fact that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know what God promised? He said, I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And so when they go to this land and they see that it truly is the most abundant thing that they've ever laid their eyes on, Caleb just instinctively says, well, if then it follows. In other words, the land is flowing with milk and honey and God promised to give it to us. Full stop. Let's go. Let's take it. Caleb chooses not to look at everything else and chooses only to look at the consequent or the the logical following of God's promise. He chooses to focus and have faith in what God has promised. And then this happens. uh, In verse... 31... Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report, saying that the land through which we have gone to out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim. And yes, we're going to talk about this. Um, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. All right, Nephilim. Without going to deep in this rabbit hole. Um, essentially, what they're saying here is the people in the land, they're giants. okay um, And essentially, when anyone in the Bible will refer to someone as a giant, they're referring to this story in Genesis chapter 6 of the Nephilim. And the Nephilim, as well, in the minds of the ancient people, so we're talking about ancient Babylonians and, and um, uh, even ancient Egyptians, and you see the myths... The, the creation myths and the stories of these uh, ancient people groups, these these uh, giant beings, because giant beings are pretty much in every ancient uh, like person's understanding of the world, um, these giant beings are essentially demigods, sons of gods, and every ancient city and, and, and people group, and ba- like Babylon and, and Assyria and all this kind of stuff, they view themselves as direct descendants Of these gods mating with these women who become these demigod giant beings who are strong and powerful. And that's why they worship their kings as gods. Because they're like, you're a direct line of these god people that exist. And so you are worthy of our praise and sacrifice and blah, 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 blah. And this is a, like, you can look this stuff up. I'm not making up any of it. So... These people here, they're saying this land is filled with demig- demigods. It's not just one of them that's a king, that's a demigod. This land is filled with them. They're all Nephilim. But the, the thing that they're forgetting is that in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible actually tells a very different story about these Nephilim. The Bible's story of these Nephilim isn't that these are the, these great gods that come from the heavens and mate with human beings and make these god kings. No, these Nephilim are fallen beings. That, uh, that fell away from God, and that God judges, and that God actually has power and dominion over, and that God, it says in Genesis six, gives the nations over to these people. It's actually His mandate. He's like, out you go, and out you go to all these other people who rebel against Me. So the story here is is at a clash. These people are looking, they're saying, they're nephilim, there. they're the sons of gods, and. But the rest of the congregation, Moses and, and Aaron and uh, Joshua and Caleb, they're saying, so what? These are people that God has already got power over, right? So what is there to be afraid of? And this is what we read uh, in um, verse, uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, uh, panic sweeps then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. Imagine being told that you're on the verge of a land that has these God beings that are... Have that cro- you ever seen Prometheus? Okay, all right, well, that, that was a fail. Um, anyway, essentially, it's te- they're terrified. They're terrified out of their mind. They're like, oh my God, you know, we're all going to die. And so they're terrified. Um, and uh, then um, they, they essentially plan a revolt. They're like, why are we here? Why are we going to go through this? Is Why would we die? Let's just go back to Egypt. Let's go back and be slaves. At least we were alive when we were slaves. Let's kick Moses and Aaron out. Let's hire new leaders. Let's raise up new leaders. This is uh, in the verses that follow. And then in verse 5, this is what happens. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jeph, whatever, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is good, exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land for their bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared as a tentative meeting to all the people of Israel. So this panic is ensuing. These people, uh, you know, essentially the leaders of the people, Moses, Aaron, and then these two other guys who were spies, who, you know, trusting God, like, all oh, guys, like, relax. And they're like, not stuff you, let's stone you, let's get. Yeah. And then God shows them, was like, enough. Enough, children. And God then has some stern words. And I'll paraphrase, Um, essentially what God says is like, these people are freaking crazy and um, they're not going to see the land. They have such little faith, they're not going to see the land. Um, And in fact, you're going to wonder the same amount of time that your spies spent, 40 days uh, circling the the place to to scout it out. You're going to spend that much time in years, 40 years, until every one of you has died out, except for Caleb and Joshua. Um, and I will give the land into your children's, into your children's uh, the same children that you were worried for, I'm going to give the land to them. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, we read this, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of the two spies, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised. Then in verse 5, he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous." being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. And verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And God's challenge to the face of these sons of gods, these people, these myths... The challenge to your fears, the boogeyman that you face at night or to the real terror that you face in the morning, whatever it is, God's challenge is remember to be strong and courageous, have faith, not because you are strong, but because he is strong, because he's the God who banished these people and gave them over. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who promised you to enter a land flowing with abundance. And when you see that land flowing with abundance, he says, walk, go. Go. I promised it to you. Go. And the enemy will try with all their heart and all their might to make you terrified and afraid. And everyone will lose their mind around you. But God says, don't be afraid. What did I tell you? I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Know my words. Know the law of Moses. Know my words. Know that I am with you. Know that I won't leave you. Know that my favor is with you. Know that I promised it to you ahead of time. Yeah? So what is... What is the thing that is holding you back from trusting God? What is the fear? What is it that you're terrified of that God is telling you? Let go. Trust me. No matter what comes, trust me. Second last story. You ready? Joy versus despair. The enemy is going to try to make you upset and sad. And God says to you, you have joy. Um, Acts chapter 16. So look. Almost done. I'll stream through the last couple. Um, Let's have a read of this story. uh, And quickly, uh, backdrop. Paul, this is the missionary journeys of Paul. And he is in the swing of things. He's on his first missionary journey. He's just reached Philippi, where he's about to set up the Church of the Philippians. And uh, yeah, he's there. And this is what happens. Um, As we were going into the place of prayer, so Luke is with him, who's writing this story. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Alright, stop. What the heck is going on here? we got a demon-possessed girl. following Paul and and co around, and she's pointing out to these guys and she's saying, these are the real deal. These are the real deal. I've been, I'm fortune telling, but these guys are the real deal. They'll lead you to salvation. They'll lead you to salvation. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty great. So far in the story, we're like, hey, the provision of God, even demons are like, you know, blah, blah. But no, keep reading. And this she kept doing for many days. We don't find out how long, but... One, more than one day, I think, is enough for something like that. So for many days, this chick is following them around, declaring that God, these are the servants of God. And uh, I don't know about you, have you ever been in a situation where someone's just constantly been like, talking to you and like of saying something over and over to you? What are you, you going to do? Do you feel joyful? Yeah, no. I'll tell you a story. When, uh, when I was in grade four, uh, there was this guy called uh, Shane and uh <laughs> yeah he's a, he's a, <laughs> yep. this was back in um uh Tasmania so yep just picture that in your head and uh I was in grade four Shane was in grade six all right now I'm the villain in this story I'll just go right out ahead and say it I'm not the hero so uh Shane was playing just like a four square with his friends and I'm sitting there uh behind Shane and uh I just kept on saying Shane Shane Shane, 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 Shane. Because I didn't like Shane. I know he didn't like me. And so he turned around and was like, what? And we are like, You're doing pretty well there, bud. Well, I was just like saying something stupid, you know? Shane, 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 What? It's <laughs> just the same thing over and over. Till eventually, Shane, I broke him. And he chased me around the schoolyard. I've never run faster in my whole life. Usain Bolt would have been like, whoa. And, um, uh... And anyway, I tried to get into a locked classroom and Shane hip and shouldered me against the wall and I broke my collarbone. Uh, that's the only broken bone I've ever had in my life. And none of the teachers believed me. They all thought I was whining and whinging. Fair enough. I must have been a very annoying kid. And uh, anyway, so that was it. So uh, this is this is the scenario that we're seeing unfold here. Okay, this girl, pull, 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 pull. What? You, you know, God's on your side, well done, that's also, well, salvation, here, yeah. come on guys, come on, Paul, 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 Paul etc. Over and over and over and over again. And so, what does Paul do? Uh, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I commend you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. <coughs> so far so good, right? Hey, that's not bad, he's convicted, he's annoyed, get out of her, and, and then the annoyance and the distraction is all gone. Paul can breathe a sigh of relief. That's the end of the story. Let's move on to the next story. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because remember, this chick was fortune-telling because of the power of this demon that was in her, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them all of a sudden we go from this scene where these guys are just going around, they've done a few nice things around the place, and all of a sudden on one situation where the you know profit is lost for this these people who are using this woman who's been tortured by a demon, all of a sudden everyone flips out and it's like a whole other presence takes over the, the place and they start uh, abusing and attacking uh, these, these people. And the magistrates, so even the highest officials, imagine like, you know, The mayor of whatever coming by and saying a mob like attacking people. That that sounds pretty good. And then attacking, joining in with the attack. So the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And this is a a command that's coming from the top. So what does the jailer do? Having received this order, he put them into the innermost part of the prison and fastened their feet with stocks and shackles. Alright, how would you be feeling? You know, you've just been walking around, minding your own business, done a few good deeds, this chick for days has been bothering you and saying all this stuff, you've been quite frustrated, and you cast out the demon, and then everyone just, it's like a switch was flipped, and it, it was like a dam broke broke open, and you're finding yourself uh, beaten and bloody with bruises, um, and you're in the deepest, darkest part of this, the, the prison that you can imagine. How are you feeling? Well, Paul and Silas felt like they wanted to worship God and to pray. And so in verse 25, about midnight. So this had gone on for a while. We can assume that the events had had transpired during either mid-morning or early in the afternoon. So, you know, a good 12 hours or something later, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners around them were listening. And suddenly, suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Do you notice... That, it, that Luke here does not write, God sent an earthquake. Just, they're praying, put two and two together, an earthquake comes. And the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. We go from a place of being literally and figuratively bound by a situation that is oppressive, that would give anyone. A feeling of despair and like hopelessness and like what the heck is going to happen next you know am I going to get out of here how long am I going to be here for uh, my back really hurts maybe I've got a cracked rib um, and I'm shackled up and we go from this literally oppressive situation and this place of despair but the people there they're not seeing things the way you or I would see they're not seeing the shackles they're not feeling the bruises they're praying. They're celebrating and worshipping God. They're focusing on something completely different. And what does God do? He, he delivers them. He rescues them. He, he sends an earthquake. And God's power is enough to shake any bond that you have around you. If it's despair, depression, sadness. If it's hopelessness. If it's... Um, Anything, whatever's binding you, know that God can shake it loose. But you, you've got to choose to focus on Him first. Because without focusing on God, you're locked up. You're, you're there. You're feeling it all. But if you choose to just divert your focus and your attention to Him, the foundations shake and everything just pops open. And the crazy thing is this, that it's not just for Paul and Silas. It's every single one of these prisoners And it's not just for the prisoners. In verse uh, um, 27, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, For we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then, in verse 34, he brought them up into his house, the jailer, and set food before them. And he was baptized, him and his whole family. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Because you see, God doesn't set you free and give you joy just for you. He sets you free and gives you joy so that you can set other people free and fill them with joy. Yeah? And years later, Paul would go on to write a book called, or a letter called The Letter to the Philippians. These same people. The guy was probably in the church that he wrote the letter to, this jailer. And he says this in in chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, what is it that is binding you up? What is it that's filling you with despair and paralysing you with sadness, depression, whatever? What is it that God wants you to focus Him on in, so that He can shake everything apart and set you free? But last but not least, and uh, maybe, maybe I'll just refer to this and you read it by yourselves. Maybe we won't necessarily read it, but it's in Matthew chapter three and chapter four. We get to the one who shows us what it's all about, and that is Jesus. Um, In a nutshell, what we were going to cover is that Satan, the enemy, wants to rob you of your identity. He wants to rob you of your joy. He wants to rob you of your purpose. He wants to rob you of um, purpose, joy, and faith. He wants to rob you of all these things. But the most important thing He wants to rob you of that kind of contains all of this stuff is your identity. He wants you to forget who you are. And guess what? Um, Jesus, God Himself, made flesh. Uh, He tried this trick on Him too. Um, And we read uh, in in, uh, Matthew chapter 3, we read the story of Jesus' baptism where he obeys faithfully the call of God and gets baptized, and then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and a voice comes from heaven of the Father, saying, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So spoiler alert, right before we get to the actual conflict of the story, we're told the outcome and the answer, which is that Jesus is the Son of God. No no mystery, full stop. And then we hear about Satan trying to attack Jesus in three different ways to get him to doubt his identity. And he always says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, well, you're hungry, Jesus. You've been 40 days in the wilderness. And if you're the Son of God, well, just turn these rocks into bread. Case closed. Easy peasy. You're the Son of God, right? Just do it. And Jesus says, no, it's not about my needs and my wants. It's about God the Father and what He has declared over my life. And He's declared I go through this. Okay, Jesus, well, here, here's the temple. Stand on top of the temple, the, living, the dwelling space of your Father, the place where literally God is supposed to dwell. Cast yourself off the top of the temple. It's a big structure. Cast yourself off it. You'll be fine. Your dad lives here. It's all good. He'll send some angels to save you. You won't hurt yourself, and uh, everyone will know that you're the Messiah. Everyone will know that you're God's son. If your father saves you from dying, he says, "No, nah. no, that's not that's not the will for my father. Don't I, I? don't test my father. I know him. I don't test him." And then, okay, let me show you all the kingdoms of, of the world. Jesus come up on the on Mount Everest, and let me show you the whole world. Was it wasn't Mount Everest. Yeah. Let me show you the whole world this is what you're all after right this is what you're trying to claim well just bow to me it's yours i'll give it to you You, you're here on earth you're wearing these clothes you're starving you're stinky you you were you know you were god and here you are and you you got nothing got no place to lay your head you you know you're a carpenter's son everyone's already weirded out by you like really you're going to continue this whole thing just bow to me now and all of it all of it's yours No, be gone from me, Satan. That's not the Father's will. Because Jesus knew that the Father's will was to buy our freedom back with his blood. He knew that he had to become the suffering Messiah and that there was no way out of that fate. And in fact, to bow to this one, who thinks that he has control, is to actually give up everything anyway. His identity, he knew who he was. He knew who the Father declared him to be. And... Do you know who you are? Do you know that you are the child of the living God? Do you know that it's not about your needs and your wants? It's not about, um, you know, approval or gaining approval from other people. It's not about proving that you're favoured by God or anything like that. And it's not about getting the easy way out. It's not about getting the shortcut to what you want or, or what your goals are. It's about following through this life for God going through for the love and the, and, the, and the relationship that he wants to have with you. And there is no other way other than the long way with that. It's a narrow road. It's a difficult journey. But it's the journey that leads to the best outcomes. It's, it's the journey that leads to the only good outcome. And we read this, just to wrap it all up, I'm going to read it in the Message Version, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, spiritual warfare... Your mind might go to this passage when you think about spiritual warfare, the armor of God. Now that we know all of this stuff, let's have a read of this. Uh, verses 10 to 18. Again, I'm reading through the message version, so if you hate that, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, verse 10, uh, from verse 10, it says this. Well that about wraps it up. God is strong, and He wants you strong. So take everything the Master has set out for you. Well-made weapons of the best materials. Your joy your faith. Uh, going to say it. I shouldn't interject in Paul's word. Uh, and put them to use so that you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over, but the shouting, uh, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is, indispensable, is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. Who is our breastplate of righteousness? Who is our righteousness? Jesus. Who is the culmination of the gospel that girds our feet? Jesus is the culmination of the gospel. Who is the very word made flesh that we carry as a sword in our hands? It's Jesus. Who is the helmet of uh, salvation? Who's the one who covers us and by his blood? It's Jesus. Put on Jesus. Know that this battle is for your very heart and your very life and your very attitude towards God and that it's not just about the outcome on this earth that the enemy is trying to play for. It's the outcome for the very soul and eternity of you and your loved ones' lives. So put on Jesus. He's done everything for us. And He wants you to have that faith. He wants you to have that joy. He wants you to have that... um, I'm blanking on the other ones. He wants you to know who you are so that you don't fall, fall or fail and so that you will withstand and ultimately so that you'll win in the way that he wants you to win, not the way that you want to win. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. Thank you for who you are, for how you love us, and for the um, vision that you have over our lives, Lord. We can't see the big picture like you, can, Lord, but we trust you. We thank you so much for your love for us, and we put everything in your hands because you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you the